What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. Today, we have something truly special for you. We have one of our very first audio docs with Nautical Ventures founder, Roger Moore. Now, I had the privilege to meet Roger in passing a few times, and during these encounters, he would offer up these small morsels from an around-the-world adventure he undertook with his wife. Roger is a true tour de force, an incredible storyteller, so I knew I needed to hear this story. That same story that we're bringing you today. What originally started as a short trip down the coast of California went on to become a 13-year around-the-world voyage that Hollywood producers would have a field day with. Now, while listening to Roger's story, I learned a lot, I laughed even more, but more than anything, it left me feeling truly inspired. I hope you enjoy part one, and we'll tune back in next week for more harrowing tales about cruising through the Middle East and some of the world's most dangerous waters. Before that, quick note to say that this episode is brought to you, as always, by Power Motor Yacht Magazine, your home for the best stories in boating. Now, you'll find more details and incredible photos from Roger's epic adventure in an upcoming issue, so make sure you don't miss it by subscribing to the magazine at pmymag.com slash subscribe. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with the one and only Roger Moore. We have an episode today that is a special one. It's a couple months in the making. Today, I sit down with Nautical Ventures founder and CEO, Roger Moore, who is uh, not only uh, an entrepreneur and mover and shaker in the boating industry, but is one heck of a storyteller, and that's, that's what we're here to dig into a little bit today. Roger, thanks for, thanks for having me here. Well, uh, it's my honor to be here, and, and I'm sorry that you've set the bar so high in the introduction. <laughs> me, me too. I, I, I wish I could take it back, but uh, we're going to have to roll with it. Okay. We'll, we'll try and live up to it. Well, I mean... First of all, you have a you. I, I like your office here. It's a really an incredible space. We're at your uh, your Fort Lauderdale location. Maybe we could just start there. It's such a unique space for a boat dealership. But this this was a former was it a BMW? It was dealership? it was the number one BMW dealership in the United States, and it was uh, quite small for them. And they've built a, an edifice across the street, a thirty five million dollar square block, and it's gorgeous. And uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to acquire it from them. They had a lot of restrictions on the building. They didn't want another automotive dealer in here. And we persuaded them that we're dealing with the same customer base. They're selling BMWs. We're selling boats. And it's been a synergistic relationship with them since uh, day one. They've been great people to deal with. And this is, this is not just a plug, but I, I love coming in here. And it's not, even if you're not in the market for buying something, you guys always have the best toys. You come in, there's, you never know what you're going to see. There's the, uh, there's an Axopar in, right in your lobby, a submarine, all the best water sport toys. So it's, uh, if you're a boater, it's like Toys R Us. Well, you know, that's been the, the basis of, of, our, of our marketing and our presentation is that we just indicate that we sell fun. This is not, uh, we don't want you to come into a serious boat dealership where you feel, you know, bring your husband and your pink slip and your checkbook and come on in. That's right, not, right. that's not the approach. It's, you know, we've, we're dealing with more upscale people. Mm-hmm. They, w- they want to have fun and they want to be re- treated re- respectfully. Yeah. So that's, that's the, the, the image that we're trying to pro- portray. Yeah. And the, the fun of walking in the door is to see all the toys and, entertain you from the, the second the doors open to uh, throughout the, the journey of hopefully buying a boat or a toy or yeah. just being involved in, in water sports or in, in the industry. Right. Well, 
I like to I like to step back a little bit with things and go back to the very beginning and how you got your start into boating. Was it something that you were born into or something that you found when you were younger? Uh, yeah, my, my dad loved boats. Uh, his first boat, I remember clearly, was a 26-foot steel craft with a single crown six-cylinder engine in it. And uh, we would spend every weekend on the boat. This was in New York. Okay, I was going to ask because I thought you had West Coast roots too, but this was in New York. This was in New York. Yep, that's where I grew up until I was about mm, 15 or so in where, New York. Where in New York? Uh, Staten Island. Okay. And my parents belonged to a what was called a yacht club. It was more like a dump. Uh, <laughs> I, know, kill, I know the type. On the Kill Van Call, the Atlas Yacht Club. Okay. Really a, a cool place. So uh, I was brought up. The first little boat was a pram, mm. uh, and my dad bought a clear uh, one of the first plexiglass boats, uh, you know, clear bottom boats. Really? Oh, it was really fun. It was great. And we'd okay. go down to the Jersey Shore, spend weekends. When he got a holiday, we'd spend a week or two weeks on the boat. Um, so I was really brought up loving the water. And he taught me, uh, you know, engine, uh, engine repairs and maintenance from day one. And I, I couldn't find the picture, but there's one of me standing on a milk crate driving the next boat he got, which was a 33-foot wheeler uh, yeah. with, with twin engines. So wow. here's this little kid driving it with the, you know, the little big controls up here for the shifters. And, yeah. and uh, he, let me, he let me do all those things, which um, I'm so thankful for because I just love boats. And that's amazing. So you were born into it. Was there, do you remember, was there a particular moment where you were like, yeah, this, this is for me. This is, you know, maybe something I want to pursue or this is something I, I really can't get enough of on my own? Well, first thing you're probably going to realize in this interview is I'm fairly ADD. <laughs> I wish I'd known it then. Swirl. So as far as direction and concentration, I'm all over the place. Okay. And Fair. so it was never... Uh, my desire to be in the boat business, it was just my love for boats okay. and enjoyment of all the experiences. Okay, so then fast forward just a little bit. How do you, what was your, what was your first boat? My first boat was in, uh, well, first boat when I was a kid yeah. was a 16-foot correct craft. And wow. it was a really cool boat. It was kind of a, a fixer-upper. Mm -hmm. uh, I told my dad I was, I think, 15 I said, oh, man, I really want to get this boat. And uh, he said, well, if you save up half the money, I'll match it. So, man, I quickly saved up the money. It was $700 for the boat back then. Mm. And uh, then I learned how to fix it up in fiberglass. It had sort of a little bit of rot and did all that sort of thing. It turned out to be a really fun boat. Of course, I named it the Jolly Roger. and had a little pirate painted on the transom. Classic. <laughs> so uh, that was my, my first boat. And. How did you save the money for that first boat? How'd oh, I, I worked around the marina. Okay. Uh, there was a fire at the marina, and uh, a, a lot of the materials that were stored melted and fell into the water, like brass, you know, propellers and brass. And I got down there with mud boots on and collected all this stuff, and my mom drove me to the junkyard, and I got paid for all that stuff. So, uh, Oh, my God. It, it was kind of a fun adventure. No one else would do it. Yeah. And then once I started doing it, everybody was upset that I was taking all this great stuff when the older guys 
said, hey, we ought to be getting that stuff. But it was too late. You were, so you were disrupting the industry from, uh, from, a, pretty, from a pretty young age. <laughs> that, that, that's amazing. How do we, so then how do we get from you know, those early adventures to the point where you are cruising around the globe? How, how, does, how did that metamorphosis happen? Well, when we moved to San Francisco, uh, we decided to, to get a, a sailboat. And uh, we sailed for several years in San Francisco for pleasure and, and had the experience of taking out a lot of the people we were doing business with on the boat. And, of course, San Francisco is marvelous for sailing. You can set your watch at 10 o'clock. That's when the winds come up. Yeah. And, uh, it's such, yeah. and it's such a memorable occasion for the people that, uh, that have done it. Mm. We took people that visited us uh, buying our products in Japan and f- for 10 years, they sent me these fancy Japanese cookies at, the in- at Christmas time in remembrance of the phenomenal time of sailing under the Golden Gate Bridge. Wow. Now, what kind of boat was it? It was a uh, Gulfstream, a 50-foot catch Gulfstream. Okay. Gulfstar. 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 Oh, okay. Gosh. Jeez. Yeah. So, okay, so you're, you're taking people out, you're making these great West Coast memories. How does the idea come across that, you know, I want to do this, I want to see the world? Okay, well, never, ever was that my dream. Um, we sold that, the business. We were in the plastic injection molding, okay. water purification, uh, NFL sports license business, uh, all plastics-related things. And I sold that business in 1986. And I said to my wife, we'd worked like 14 years building it, and I said, hey, honey, why don't we... Uh, Let's get a boat and cruise down the coast of California. And she gave me this rather strange look saying, what are you talking about? But she was phenomenal. She would follow all my crazy ideas. So we bought a, uh, a Choi Lee motor sailor by f- good fortune, a really good fortune. Um, great, great boat for what we ended up doing. But the intent was to take four months and to just cruise down the coast of uh, California. Gunkoling. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but yeah, yeah. we hit every port, every anchorage that you can hit, and we loved it. Absolutely loved it. So just my wife and I, I remember the first time we anchored, she was petrified. You know, this 130-pound anchor with, I don't know, three-quarter-inch chain and all this. Uh, when, when it started to lower, it made a lot of noise, and it was a lot of power. Yeah. And she learned how to do that, and... She learned how to do everything on the boat, uh, as you'll see as this story unfolds and what ended up happening. But we spent the four months cruising down the coast of California and looked at one another and said, this is great, let's go to Mexico. And uh, she looked at me and said, I love it, let's go. So we gunkled our way all the way down to Acapulco. And if you look, uh, I've got a globe here, if you you look at, it's a long way down. (laughs) And then what do you do? So we met some people uh, at the Acapulco. Once again, I call it Yacht Club. It's, not, it's, <laughs> it's a stretch. Of, it's, it's, a, it's a stretch. Yeah. Yep, yep. Um, and Samantha, Samantha was my wife, um, she would comment that NASA puts people on the moon with less planning than uh, these people that were going to cross the Pacific. Yeah. And when they mentioned it to me, uh, I was not interested. It was... It's 2,850 nautical mile voyage and nothing in between. So it's quite a commitment. 
and I was not interested. That was not the goal. A month later, off we went. Oh my God! So, and uh, what was what was funny? This is kind of a long story. I'll try and abbreviate it. But all this planning was: Do you pick up the northeast trades or the southeast trades? You know, what's the correct route? You're going through the doldrums. Right. So if you're on a sailboat and you're going through the doldrums, you want to minimize that time going through the doldrums. So we followed a book called James Cornell's World Cruising Routes. Of course. And it's Bible, right? It's a Bible. Yeah. But it's a reference Bible. You know, you can't read it. You just say if you're going from point A to point B, what does James say? And it's a compilation of everything back from Captain Cook and pilot charts and all the rest of it. He's done all the work. And you get to look at a few paragraphs mm -hmm. and which charts you need. So I followed his route, which was go north, cut obliquely through the doldrums, and then pick up the southeast trades. Well, each one of these boats, uh, the captains, there were originally four of us. And we, we determined that the way we'd start this trip was based on waterline length. So that when we were in the middle of the, of the voyage, we'd be in the closest proximity to one another so we could help one another. So we had a 63 Choyley motor sailor. So we were the last to leave, uh, having the highest, uh, you know, the, the longest waterline length and the highest speed. And one went down to try and pick up the southeast trades. Uh, another one uh, went ahead of us. And uh, the other boat opted out. They got nervous and didn't go. Okay. So there are basically three of us that crossed. The word together, we were, you know, far apart, but on the same path. Okay. So uh, the, they all laughed at me because we had a motor sailor, and they had pure sailboats. Mm -hmm. um, and I was over filling up what the generator burned the night before to make sure I had every drop of fuel that I could have on, yeah. this, on this voyage. And we held quite a bit. It was like 1,450 gallons or something, a lot of fuel. Just in uh, normal tanks? Just That's in normal tanks. With, okay. Yep, normal tanks. It was a twin engine, mm -hmm. uh, 32 8 cats, feathering props. So she sailed really quite well on yeah. a beam reach. She'd do 50% of the wind speed, um, but could not come to weather. I mean, it was a beamy boat. Uh, 16 and a half foot beam. Right, right. So um, I was sort of the butt of all the jokes because I had this clunky motor sailor and off we went and we ended up motoring to get out of the bay in Acapulco like three days. Um, and I, I don't know how detailed we want to go. But let's go. Go, okay. Let's, let's go. All right. So all this planning and all this nervousness and here we go, we, we leave from Acapulco, the, the boat name was Good Grief, and we take Good Grief out, and we're about 12 hours into this voyage at night, and Samantha uh, took the first watch. She was, uh, she was the night person. Okay. Okay, and as we were switching watch, I went down and I go to step on the bed, and the carpet's wet in the master stateroom. I go, oh my God, how can this be? Yeah. There's no way that we can have. So I taste it, it's salt water. And I don't want to say I panicked, but I said, 
you know, we're only 12 hours into, into this multi-week yeah, journey. Let's turn around. And Samantha, man, chokes me up thinking. Uh, she said, why don't we just approach this like we were halfway? What would you do? I said, well, we'll figure out where it's coming from. And that was kind of an interesting thing. I started tearing out the furniture uh, in the master cabin. I had a battery-powered skill saw. I cut the back of the, the settee out and exposed that there was water coming from a, the aft bulkhead through a hole that they had produced at the factory. Like it had a, I think it was a six or eight inch exhaust hose. And when they cut the hole, they just put a whole bunch of different holes and then punched the hole out. So there were all these sharp little like triangles where the, yeah. the hole remained. Oh God! So, you know, the exhaust sort of pulsate a little bit. So the exhaust for rubbing up against it, rubbing up against it, pulsated and it made a little hole the size of the end of my pinky finger. So what we did is we shut down that engine, we turned on the other engine, and I, I got a patch. I had some rubber material and some silicone. So I patched it, put some big hose clamps on it, and I think to this day it's the, it's the oh, same. Oh, no. <laughs> no it, it was great. That's all it needed. Yeah. And off we went. We dried out the carpet, rinsed it, and dried out the carpet. And that was the first little scare. I mean, it really wasn't scary. We, we weren't bucketing water out of the aft cabin, but it was. It gives you pause to say, what are you going to do if you're, we were three weeks, three weeks on the water uh, with no help, no, no one in the proximity. So, uh, but you were right though. What amazing perspective that she had to say like, okay, you know, we are not that far from home, but how, you know, what would we do if we were out there? I mean, just the, um, I don't know, the, the calmness. I mean, it's, uh, sounds like she, she probably was a good compliment to, to you. At a, I would imagine. She was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And we, we had biorhythms that were, uh, were perfect because we do six on and six off. You hear of so many people two on, two off, um, and you don't get any good sleep, it's and it's exhausted. really tough on you. Yeah. But six on and six off, it was it was perfect. It was phenomenal. We could have gone for six months. Really? Oh yeah. We had a real nice rhythm. We'd wake up. I'd uh, she would do the night shift, wake me up about one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock whenever she was tired. And then I'd take it, which was easy for me. I'm looking forward to the sunrise. I'm a morning person. As you say, you, seem, you strike me like a morning person. Yep. And uh, it, was, it was phenomenal. We'd have breakfast together. Whoever's tired, nap. And she learned, she'd do the engine room inspections, plot. That was back in the day of transit sat-nav. So we had a sextant. Uh, all I could take is a noon sight. My dad tried to teach me how to do star sights. That was beyond my ability to concentrate. But I could do a noon site. Okay. And uh, with transit sat nav, uh, we plotted our way across and landed in the Marquesas 21 days later. 21 days at sea. Yep. But now I've got to tell you one other funny thing. Please. Here we are about halfway and I have to describe the three boats. We're doing fine. We're sailing nicely. Uh, our threshold was four knots. If we weren't doing four knots, we'd start one engine. And so our planning speed was usually six, six knots. So the folks that went to pick up the southeast trades with a pure sailboat 
had all kinds of problems. They ran really low on fuel. They had to sail. They were in the doldrums. We had ham radio contacts at noon and midnight every day to check on each other. And they were fighting. We could hear the sails. If you've ever been on a sailboat where there's a sea and very little wind, you get that boom, you get that boom slap. Um, you get that horrible feeling that's just the mast is going to come down. Yeah. And they were really having a hard time of it. They, they ended up quitting. They got to uh, the Marquesas and went straight to Hawaii and quit. Wow. Uh, it was a tough trip for them. Yeah. Then the other was a doctor and a nurse uh, on a boat called Kahuna, and we were getting close to one another. Um, in the middle they, of the ocean. <laughs> in the middle of the ocean. So we modified our courses, and we, we lowered sail, and they swam up to the offline with, they hooked their, they got their anchor rowed, and they swam over to my boat with a bottle of wine in the middle of the ocean. Uh, we had a wine on the back deck, and their boat would disappear behind our boat. You know, the seas are huge out there, but they're big rollers. Yeah. So they just disappear and then reappear, and here we are, two boats sitting in the middle of nowhere. And I said, well, how's your trip going? And they said, it's going great, but, man, we're really low on water. It's so hot, we're showering more often and trying to rinse off. And I said, well, how many hoses have you got? They had two, we had two, so we hooked the hoses together. I had a water maker, so I filled their tank up in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, my God. Uh, so they were elated. I said, do you need anything else? No, we're great. So off we go, and we sail away. And the next day at noon... Uh, I get a, in the radio contact, uh, Jerry calls me, or Jerry says, Roger, there's a helicopter hover, hovering overhead. And I said, Jerry, are you hallucinating? There's no helicopter that can make it 1,500 miles. He said, shut up, Roger. There's a <laughs> helicopter here. I know what I'm saying. I'll call you back. So um, we find out that there was a long liner fishing boat out in the middle of the Pacific, and they have a helicopter that they send out to spot spot fish. the fish, and then they send their launches out to go fish them. So when they saw this guy's American flag, they said, do you need anything? Well, they didn't have the guts to ask me for fuel because they laughed at me when I was putting fuel right, in at the right. So they dispatched one of the boats to them and gave them 30 gallons of diesel for nothing, and they brought two quarts of chocolate ice cream for them. So here's a boat that gets... Which, is worth, which was worth more, the fuel or the ice cream? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but probably a tough... Yeah, yeah. That's a toss-up. Right. But the, uh, this one boat gets water, fuel, and ice cream Literally. in the middle of this journey. So, and the other people had a horrific experience. That's not in Jimmy Cornell's book. That's, no, not uh, in the yeah. book. So the, too many stories like this, but that, that was a remarkable crossing. And when we got to the Marquesas, it was 21 days. And uh, I remember going to check in uh, with customs. We had a little dog. And we're trying to walk up there. <clears throat> and after 21 days at sea, wow, do you suffer from, uh, what, what is it? Uh, you, you, I know you're you, saying you, that you, you still feel like you're at sea. Yeah, you're, you're, you're still rocking. You can, yeah, you can't walk a straight line. I forget the name of it. Yeah. And my dog is trying to walk and walks off the path. Can't even walk. Oh, my God. So, so that was the, uh, the side effect there. But we had a lovely experience uh, in the Marquesas, which was the landing spot. 
spent a few weeks there, and then continued. Trying to on. imagine that feeling of you land at the Marquesas and and you're you're back on land. I mean, what that what that first couple of days must feel like? Part celebration, part exhaustion, part no exhaustion. We could have kept felt going. Good. Absolutely no exhaustion. Nope. Wow. That's thanks to my wife and the the, the schedule that we had. We yeah. were able to sustain it. Yep. That's amazing. I would I would like to take um, another step back, if you don't mind, and and talk a little bit about about your late wife. Was she was she also born into boating? Was that, did she pick it up through through you and then and then learned it, loved it, or what was what was that like? She had a little exposure. Her uh, grandfather had a fishing boat in San Diego, so she'd go out with him once in a while. Was she from the West Coast? Uh, she was from San Diego. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. And uh, so. She liked boats, mm-hmm. and uh, I guess the first boat in California we got was a little 21-foot marquee or something mm-hmm. to use up in the Sacramento Delta. Okay. And, of course, we loved it so much. Uh, that's camping. I mean, that had a porta potty in it and yeah, all yeah. that. So we'd go up there for the weekend. Then we ended up leaving a little earlier on Fridays, and then we'd come back Monday, and pretty soon it was Thursday night, <laughs> coming back Monday night. So I've heard this story l- before. Yep. This is yeah. yeah. So we got a little bigger boat and bigger boat, and that's that's how. But she 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 really took to it, embraced it, the love kind of it. right out right out of the go. Yep. And there was a to 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 be direct with that question. There were times when each of us were waning on this this whole adventure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard. It's an adventure. I don't yeah. look for sympathy, but it's work. Yeah. And when I'd get a little down about it, she was up. And when she'd get a little down about it, I was up. So. We wow. balanced one another, and it, it was just the whole thing was phenomenal experience. You know, one of the reasons I ask about that, too, because you hear so often in boating, it's uh, everyone from the guy I bought my boat from. To, I mean, you hear it time and time again. It's, you know, a uh, significant other starts to, starts to fade on the sport or a couple bad experiences or maybe maybe doesn't play as much of an active role traditionally as, uh, you know, as, a, as a husband might. Um, is there any advice or insights from from your cruising experiences, things that you did well or, or or learned from each other that you guys are such a good team? Well, we learned a lot from each other, yeah. and we were a phenomenal team. Uh, she could do most anything needed on the boat. She'd irritate the heck out of me sometimes. I'd be in the engine room trying to solve the problem. She was very practical. She was. Uh, yeah. She'd come down and say, "Did you did you look at this? This doesn't look normal." And I said, get out of my engine room. <laughs> yes, I didn't look at you, that. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Thanks, honey. But get out of here. This yeah, is a yeah. man's job oh. down here, you know, right? I, <laughs> but, I get it. Uh, I get it. But then she was, she was magic in the galley. I mean, we crossed that 21 days. We had fresh vegetables. We had fresh eggs. She learned how to coat the eggs with wax and then turn them over every day. So, you know, it, so the, the yolk doesn't sit in one place. Um, and we oh learned this never by... Never heard that. Never heard that trick. We learned all this by reading some of these books. Yeah. And another little thing I could share for anybody that's Please. thinking about this is I went to, uh, I think it was, uh, what's the, the bookstore here? Marine Bookstore. Okay. And I said, you know, we're thinking about going cruising, and I'd like, I'd like to buy a couple of books to read about it. And they said, well, what kind of books do you want? I said, well, I'd like a book about how to do it really comfortably, and I'd like a book about, you know, safety and, and other things. So we got two books, 
two or three books. One was called James Cornell's, no, not James Cornell's Cruising Routes, Cruising in Comfort by James Skoog. And he writes a book all about how to do this comfortably. You've got to have plenty of sunshades. You've got to have this. This is how the refrigeration. He goes through all of the creature comforts yeah. to make it pleasant. And then they had some, some kind of books about how difficult it is. I said, I don't want any of those. So, because <laughs> there's one where the guy's drilling his own teeth in the middle of the, then putting epoxy in them. Oh, I bet th- this is what happens when you're out there for four months. What do you do? I'm not epoxying my no, teeth. No, me that, neither. That's not happening. Me neither. <laughs> me neither. But, but there's a lot of ways to live. And yeah. we had air conditioning, refrigeration, freezers. Uh, so it was, it was comfortable. Yeah. So my tip to any guy that wants to get his wife to go cruising, Please. make it comfortable. Make it air conditioning. Give them freezers. Give them all of the things that they need that you have to maintain, but give them the things they need so yeah. that you can be comfortable and not be roughing it camping and having an unpleasant experience, that's, if you can afford it. That, that resonates with me. Yeah, no, it's, um, I, think, I think that's great advice. I want, I want to get back to your around-the-world trip, but, but one last question about your, your this kind of impromptu decision. I mean, it was, you said over the course of 30 days you made the decision to, to go and, and cross the ocean. I mean, is, is there like a secret there where it's like some people will dream and, and fuss over a, a trip like that for their, you know, their entire lives and, and maybe, maybe they get scared of it or maybe they, uh, I don't know, maybe you chicken out or, or something like that. Was there, is there a lesson in that you analyzed it, you thought about it, you did your homework, but you didn't, you didn't agonize over the decision for, for years and years. Is that what helped you maybe push off the dock? Well, we were only pushing off the dock to make a journey. It wasn't for a round-the-world cruise. Yeah, but for an ocean crossing, though, well, I mean, not the, insignificant. Yeah, a significant ocean crossing was nerve. You know, we were nervous about it. Yeah. But uh, it seemed certainly doable. The boat was capable, yeah. and we did enough planning. So um, it, it seemed like, let, let's do it. Let's try this adventure. We can always turn around and, and come back. And you've always have you always had that ability to kind of push beyond your, your comfort zone. You strike me as somebody who doesn't hang out in the comfort zone all that much, but uh, was that always the case? Uh, probably. I mean, I've always done different things, and uh, if it's different, I want to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that I guess that's the challenge or the desire to experience what I haven't experienced. Yeah. Okay. Well said. So you get to the more cases. The journey doesn't stop there. Where, where, where do we go from there? Uh, from the Marquesas to the Tuamotus. I don't know where that is. The, the Tuamotu Islands. Uh, they're all uh, low-lying atolls. They were, uh, hurric- not hurricanes, uh, volcanoes. Mm. So there's just like a ringed atoll Okay. with uh, usually one or two passes into it. Absolutely mind-boggling place. We stayed there about a month. It was now, what's that like? Is that like island hopping and you're just in these picturesque? No, we're just sitting at an anchorage, fishing. Uh, they did pearl farming there, so we learned about pearl farming. Um, met other boaters. I mean, the, the social life of meeting other people that are crazy and, and sailing around the world are just sailing in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a lot in common. So, we, you know, we met older people from Germany and all kinds. We had kids come over there that were... Probably in their, not late teens, maybe their early 20s, mm-hmm. in a 21-foot sailboat. Only one could even lay down at a time. These guys had nothing. They didn't even have a mast light, which I thought was 
wrong. They're sailing without any markings. Yeah. And they were covered in insect bites and all this, but they were happy as can be. They were living, uh, an, they, were, they were having an adventure that very few people can have. So that was the what I'd call the, the entry-level budget way to do it. And, yeah. of course, it cost next to nothing. Yeah. We ate fish, and that's all they ate, I yeah, guess. But, yeah. Oh my um, God. And then we we had we were fortunate and had a really nice boat that was comfortable and. So, at this point, what was the what was the plan? So you guys now you're continuing on to these different locations. Was the original plan that you were going to eventually just head for home? When did, what was the turning point that you were like, let's let's keep going? We're over here now. Let's. There were fifty turning points, which was what's above the what's across the horizon. Okay, from the two Amotus, you go to the Society Islands, Bora Bora, you know, Tahiti, Morea. Uh, these are just picturesque things you dream about. Mm-hmm. And we spent a couple of months in uh, Papiete and, uh, and cruised all the islands through uh, French Polynesia. So, okay, well, now we're done here. Let's, uh, where should we go next? So the next one, uh, that was, I think, the Cook Islands. So we ended up in the Cook Islands and then to Fiji. And it's just, oh, with Tonga. Oh, I have to stop in Tonga for a minute. Of course. Um, we stopped a number of times in this voyage to avoid weather. Uh, so the, the cyclone season down there, like our hurricane season up here, mm-hmm. we decided we'd stop in Tonga in the North Island group called Vava'u. P-A-V-A-U, Vava'u. And we put down a mooring there, which was another whole experience. Put down this mooring uh, in a very safe place, considered a hurricane hole. And we spent seven months in Tonga. Uh, the stories about this were some some really meaningful life stories. But um, I mean, do you mind? I mean, what? I mean, yeah, like what? Well, first of all... Wh- a couple of the little highlight things. Please. Where we were anchored, in order to get fuel or food or whatever, we have to launch the dinghy and go ashore. So if you want to get fuel for the dinghy, you can figure six or seven hours by the time you get it over there, take the tank out of the boat, hike up to the city, you know, to the village and, and get the fuel and come back. Uh, so nothing happens quickly. But what else are you doing? So you're, you're yeah. living this adventure. And when I first got there... Uh, you know, we really enjoyed watching uh, videos on the boat. Uh, so we brought a whole bunch of VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. That's dating mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I went to the video store. They had one video store there. And I met uh, the owner of the video store. And I said, hey, I got a deal for you because I like deals. And I said, we've got a pretty nice video library, but I've seen them all. Yeah. How about we're going to be here for several months. I'm going to bring you my whole library. You can rent it, do whatever you want with it, and I get to pick whatever I want, and I'll, I'll, I'll use your library, and you don't charge me anything, so we both win. So we became really good buddies with this guy and his family, and so we made, made this deal. So, so you're, you're saying you're a part investor in a <laughs> film store in Tonga. <laughs> That's one of the initial uh, ventures there. Barter. Yeah. Barter. Barter. Yep. Oh, my God. It was fun. So he introduced us to his, his uh, <laughs> brother-in-law who owns the grocery store. And when I say grocery store, this is basic stuff. Yeah. I mean, so uh, we became very good friends. They had us over to, to eat and, you know, dirt floors, kids running around naked. 
they eat and there's food all over them and it's it's a slice of life that we don't really see it's normal for them and jeez at at one point they were so good to us so nice to us that i said to samantha i said let's have them out to the boat and have a nice western dinner for them and let's show them you know a, a, another slice of life so they agreed like they agreed well we'll come out on friday night Okay, great. So I go in on Thursday to confirm it, and they said, we can't make it. I said, okay, well, let's do next week. So the next week comes. They can't do it next week. And finally, up. I said, well, come on, we're friends. What's, what's the problem here? They said, well, you've invited us, but you didn't invite our kids. We don't go anywhere without our kids. And I said, well, in America, if you're invited to dinner with your friends, the, the kids are not invited. I mean, this is an adult thing, an adult experience. And I'm imagining these kids on our boat. There's a, there's a few of them. There's, there's yeah, there's a bunch. like three kids, but, yeah. you know, we've got white carpet in the boat. And yeah. to have these kids walking around with food, and it, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Um, so I finally came up with an idea that we would take the boat to a close resort, and they would come join us, and they'd swim out to the boat. So they'd all be clean, and they'd come out to the boat, and we had dinner on the boat, and they swam back. You imagine, anywhere else that you have your guests swim out to the boat boat. to meet you for dinner. And the next thing that was amazing is when I told them about uh, it's unusual for us to invite kids when it's an adult party, they said, you know, I heard that when your parents get old, you put them in a home for somebody else to take care of them. Hmm. I said, yeah. He says, how could you do that? They wiped your butt. They took care of you. They loved you. They gave you everything you wanted. And when they need you, you let them go be with somebody else that doesn't love them and doesn't just caring for them. How can you possibly wow. treat your your family like that? I go, wow. Yeah. That's perspective. That perspective. And, you know, they're about family. Mm. And we're about getting ahead and making more money and doing more things. And mm. it's uh, that was kind of eye-opening. Yeah. Yeah, it is. What else would you do when you're in these locations for, for months at a time? I mean, is, um, you know, you mentioned them and I was, I was going to ask you that question before you even mentioned the movies and, and exploring. I mean, were you guys, did you also, I don't know, hike or did you, were you trying to work at all? I mean, this just feels like today you'd be blogging and YouTube videos and writing a book or something, but, um, were there any other, yeah, any other pastimes or stuff? When you were in these places? The, yes, the pastime is maintaining the boat. Good point. And uh, thought you were going to say that. I was pretty anal about it because uh, the Choi Lee has a beautiful, some, some nice teak wood on it. Mm-hmm. Like the cap rail was, was varnished. Mm-hmm. Most people let him go. Yeah. And I wouldn't let it go. I was proud to have, I, I love the look of the, the nice varnish. So if you read my logbook, it's where I varnished around the world. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you know, sand and put two coats on here. Paul, it, the Choi Lee used 304 stainless rather than 316 stainless. I didn't know that when I bought it. And, of course, there was constant maintenance to try and keep the stainless steel from... It's polished, like just polishing polish, it nonstop? Yep, polish it, wax it, try and stop the bleeding of the rust. Mm. And uh, even the anchors were big uh, stainless steel anchors. And wow. I was down there in the dinghy polishing the anchors because... 
Wow. So yeah. there is a lot of work in maintaining yeah. the engines, changing the oil. I learned, uh, oh, I can go on forever, but go for it. Uh, before we left, um, I asked the Caterpillar mechanic to come out and I asked him to bring any specialty tools, extra tools that I would buy from him. And I took the manual and I said, how do you adjust the valves? How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you pull the pump? How do you do these things? So this guy, I gave him a beer. He sat on the battery box and he taught me how to do all these things. And I'm making notes. That's amazing. And so I was comfortable yeah. maintaining the engines. I asked the air conditioning guy the same thing. I bought a, an encyclopedia on air conditioning maintenance. Mm -hmm. And I asked him to come out and bring an extra thing of uh, Freon, yeah. set of gauges, and all the tools that you need, specialty tools. And I learned how to recharge the AC system, hmm. how to analyze it, what the pressure should be. So, and boy, did that come in handy. Uh, I was helping other people, and which is kind of cool. Then, yeah. you know, you all help each other out there. Uh, and then I was, again, crazy about spare parts. I had spare bilge pumps, spare everything I could think of. And it, it all paid off. It made it much more enjoyable. Um, yeah, no, good, good answer. So back, back to this great adventure. It, it, it continues on where, where did you go from here? Cause I know the journey doesn't stop. Well, from Tonga to Fiji, yep. uh, Fiji was an amazing, amazing place. Mm -hmm. You have to go through to get a cruising permit in Fiji. You have to go through a class to how to respect the, uh, the native, the native Islanders there because they own the water. So you have to go ask for permission to anchor. Mm. Uh, and the way you do that is you bring a gift of kava, which is a pepper plant root, root that they make a drink out of. Mm. And you present that to the chief of that village and they give you permission. Well, that was a license to meet all kinds of cool people and to embrace their culture. I was there with, uh, I had a guest on the boat who's a good friend of mine who was our our GP, our, our physician. And we go to this uh, kava ceremony. After we presented it, we were permitted to anchor, mm -hmm. and then they invited us to a kava ceremony. So we go into this hut, grass hut. Um, a lot of the villagers are circled around. You know, the ladies are on the outside, the guys are in the middle, and we're this, they've got this uh, ceremonial kava bowl, which is a wooden carved bowl, and they take the pepper plant root, this kava, and they pound it into a powder, put it in a sock, literally a sock, and then they, they knead the sock in the water to get the kava to dissolve, and it looks like dirty dishwater. Uh -huh. Now, here are these socks that don't look that clean. This big, uh, it was a, an old um, uh, artillery shell that they're pounding with a steel rod to pulverize to do it. And then these guys, if you looked at their hands, they, you know, they hadn't been to the groomer, hadn't had their nails done recently, and they're kneading this. And I'm sitting next to this doctor. And he, like, said, he says, Roger, you are not going to drink this. You are not going to drink this. And I said, you know, I've got to, you know. I, I'm not going to insult these. Yeah. I, I couldn't insult them. So the chief comes to me with his, and, of course, the bowl is a half a coconut. So they want, you want a half tide or full tide? you want a half a bowl or a full bowl? So, of course. Thinking quarter, quarter yeah. tide. Yes, a... I said, oh, full tide, you know, full tide. 
So anyway, I think it's gonna be the name of your book right there. That's uh, <laughs> so John, the the doctor is he's cringing. He says you can't do this, and of course I did, and I had some some reaction to it the next day. Oh, we'll, just, we'll leave it at that. That's right. one story I'm gonna cut. I'm gonna cut you short on. Okay. Uh, so that that was Tonga and uh, oh sorry Fiji. That was Fiji. Um, a bunch more stories there, but. Uh, that was pr- probably one of the highlight stories. Okay. And then from there? Uh, from Fiji, we went to Noumea. Um, that's where we hit some of the roughest weather. Everybody asked how, you know, yeah. what kind of storms did you yeah. hit? The worst weather we incurred was there, and it was like 35 knots uh, for like 40 hours. It was pretty, pretty wow. grueling. Maybe 16-foot seas, but again... When you think of 16-foot seas here in South Florida, that's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But there, they're you know spread further apart. Yeah. You know the, the the moment is less, more. Um, but I remember going out one night and turning on the the, the mizzen light and seeing the waves were above, uh, uh, halfway up the mizzen mast. But of course, they're not breaking on the boat, but you think they are. Right, right. And when they smack the side of the boat, you just look down to see. It. Are your feet wet? You know, uh, it was a little. That was a little that's tense. Yeah. But that's the worst. That's the worst we encountered, and the boat handled it just great. Okay. So, uh, then and from there, I mean, this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you continued all the way. I mean, this this story continues around the world, right? Yeah. So well, this is from there we went to Australia, and by then Australia. it was another uh, cyclone season. So, so you hung out there. We hung out there. We had a. A dog and a cat at that time so in Australia you can't land with a dog and a cat so we made arrangements to be on a pile berth which are in the middle of the Brisbane River they have pilings and you tie up fore and aft so you run a stern line okay. to one and a bow line to the other so we spent several months uh, in Brisbane right off the Botanic Gardens um, on, the, on this pile berth so you know running the generator when we needed it we had a pretty good Pretty good electrical system going with uh, as far as how much runtime and all that. And uh, we'd go ashore by, I'd leave the, the animals were quarantined on the boat. We got permission to do that and we'd go ashore. How long were you there? Uh, we were, well, in Australia about six months, but we spent like four months in the Brisbane, okay. Gold, Coast, Gold Coast area there. Wow. Met some wonderful people. National pastime is drinking. <laughs> we fit right in. <laughs> so. I've heard that. I've heard that. <laughs> right. So then we, we left there, uh, we, we hit the, uh, didn't hit, thank goodness, but we went out to the uh, Great Barrier Reef a couple of times, which was a surprising experience because at its closest point, it's, uh, it's 30-something miles off the coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'm right there. I'm not, don't yeah, yeah. quote me on that one. But it's, it's quite a journey. So uh, we got out there and... Samantha and I, and we went to a park. Uh, obviously, it's a, a water park. Yeah, yeah. And we uh, dropped the anchor out there. Or, oh, no, we picked up a mooring. You're not supposed to anchor out I was there. Say. And Samantha put on her dive gear, and she was first in the water. And she came up, and her eyes were bigger than the goggles. I mean, her eyes, I thought maybe we, had, we were over a big coral head or something. Yeah. And she said, get in quick you got to see this and they're like 300 pound potato cod 
and they come right up to you. They're looking for handout. And every fish species that you can imagine is like on steroids. I mean, yeah. they're huge. Um, so we got in and we're, we're diving all over there. And I've got some pictures. I couldn't find them to show you. But I've got one with her standing on the reef. And there's a clam. And she cannot get her legs far enough apart to show how big this giant clam is that's, that's in the reef. What a world. Oh, it is totally another world. I mean, it, it was really cool. But we talked to other people that brought bicycles so they could ride up and down the Great Barrier Reef. Well, it's not exposed anywhere. Yeah. But this is the, the, you know, what people think when they look at a chart. Here's this reef out there. Oh, well, you can go out. Yeah. But, uh, but it is a phenomenal experience. And then we went up to uh, Thursday Island and into uh, Indonesia. And we, we would always go at the go to the less frequented places. And the reception that you get, the curiosity, the interaction between the local people is, uh, it, it, I mean, it, that's the experience. That sounds like something you thrived off of and you really sought out. Always. Because that's where you really, to, to be a tourist to me and go to a hotel and go do touristy things, you don't meet real people. Yeah. Uh, we had to, you know, in uh, Papiete, when we were, uh, you know, in uh, French Polynesia, I had to go buy parts. I had to learn some French. I had to uh, interact with the people. You have to go to the grocery store. You have to, you have to interact with those people. And that's where you really, I feel, get the experience of the culture. Mm. You don't get it by being a tourist. Uh, Certainly we were tourists, but we were residing there for significant periods of time. Yeah. And I, I'm not great at any language, but I try. And that's what people want. They respect that, yeah. They respect your trying, even if you butcher it. Right. So I think that's something we all need to know is when somebody's trying to speak to us, you know, embrace it, not look down on them. So. Yeah, no, that one hurts. I'm so bad at other languages. I'm still working on this one right now, <laughs> but uh, you, you do re I do understand how you would respect Somebody who's genuine—you could tell who's someone who's trying to genuinely understand your customs. I mean, that's that's why you went full tide. I mean, it's that you're um, you just had a real respect for all the places you went. It was cool. Um, and throughout throughout Indonesia was a, a great experience, a, a challenging marine experience because the waters are are very deep and almost. There were some places that we had to anchor by dropping an anchor on the shelf. Because the water was so deep right. that you, never, you could never touch right. bottom. And I'd jump in and look at what was under me, and it's just deep blue. And then you swim up to where the anchor is, and you can see that actually it's a reverse. It's cantilevered. The, the, the reef is cantilevered out, and the wall goes down in a negative direction. It's pretty interesting stuff. Wow. And then we went to uh, Bali, and we stopped at almost every island. But uh, Bali and Komodo, you've heard of the Komodo dragons? Yes. So we, that's an, the, Daniel. No, let's, I, <laughs> tell me. Uh, so you have to make arrangements to go see the Komodo dragons. They've got them in like a park. Yeah. It's kind of a, an open park, but it's a designated area. Yeah. So we decided we would buy us a, a small goat um, because the dragons love goats, eating them, that is. Right. I, so, yeah, not playing with them. I got yep. it. It's so we've got a guide that's taking us up there, and he's got the goat over his shoulders, you know, the, 
Two this legs. is normal. If you want to visit, you'd like buy a goat. This wasn't just some crazy Roger idea. No, no. This is uh, it's an option that you can do. Okay. So we we bought the goat. We went up there with three or four people, and as we're going up, the guy's got a stick, and he's controlling these twelve foot lizards. I mean, they look like alligators. Yeah. Um, but they're they're lizards, and we we get up to the there's like a pen. It's maybe eighteen inches tall. And we go inside the pen, and then he takes the, the goat and very delicately puts a, a uh, palm leaf over its throat and uh, cuts the throat of the goat and then gives it to the, to the uh, Komodo dragons, the lizards. That goat didn't last 20 seconds. It was amazing. These things are just plodding along, and then they went feverishly, and everything, bones, Forever gone. <laughs> they ate the whole thing. I mean, so. my yeah, my, my mouth is open here because it's just like I mean, what what a story. He's controlling them with a stick one second, and they're like, oh, they're pretty friendly. But then first taste of blood, they're ripping this goat apart. Yep. And then we don't want to step back out of the pen. <laughs> yeah. But, Jeez. So that was feeding the Komodo dragons, and uh, pretty cool. Yeah, that is that is pretty cool. And then of course there's all the social and the restaurants and the you know living that that. Uh, Indonesian food and the culture and all that's pretty interesting. I mean, how long were you kind of in that, what do you call it? I mean, yeah, that area of like Asia and then Indonesia, like all total, I'm, I'm losing the, the sense of time, time a little bit. Cause it was like a couple months here, a couple months there. How long are we into this trip at this point that you're doing the Komodo dragons? Well, let's see. This is year two. Okay. Year two. So I was thinking it's, yeah. it's a, all right. Year two. And, uh, so uh, Indonesia, then uh, Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hauled the boat out in Singapore to do bottom job and some maintenance stuff. Singapore is a, a great place. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, how do you like Singapore? I said, it's fine. They fine you for not flushing the toilet. They fine you for spitting. They fine you for littering. Everything they fine is, you for everything. Everything is fine. Fine, 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 fine. Fine, fine, fine. But beautiful city and okay. nice people yeah. and... It, it was a great experience. I'm, I'm not making fun of them with their fining. Right, but, right. But it works. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. You, you're in the bathroom all by yourself, and you're going to get a fine if you don't flush the urinal. It's. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to know how they how they get you for that one. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> Me neither. I but, don't know. Uh, uh, I'm just going to trust that they do. <laughs> yeah. So from there, where do we left? Uh, Singapore, Malaysia, uh, Thailand. Oh, Thailand, phenomenal. A uh, great place. Just beautiful. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful people, yeah. great food. Um, and then from there we went, we crossed the uh, Indian Ocean mm-hmm. to uh, Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, we were just going to stop in, and we ended up spending a month. Uh, we met the chief of police there. Uh, he took us under his wing and took Which us. Which is usually to, what you don't, don't want, want to happen, yeah. is the chief of police to take you under their wing. Yep. You made another friendship. Yeah, we were really lucky because offline was a, it's a cool looking boat, mm-hmm. and it's a big boat for two people to be running. Yeah, uh, which I should comment about that as well. But uh, when it goes in, into a port, especially in these remote places, they it, it gathers it garners attention. Yeah. So it opened the door for us to meet a lot of people. So we would always invite the officials out to the boat treat them with respect yeah. and learn more and they would open the doors for us and um, 
I hired a couple of young Sri Lankan kids to help me varnish the boat again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and polish and do things. Uh, so made friends with, with the local community. Then we went to the Maldives mm. from there. Maldives was interesting, very interesting. Beautiful islands. Love tourism. If, in fact, you fly in or come in on a cruise ship and go to specified islands that are designated for tourism where they have non-Maldive people working because they are into Islamic purity and they don't want the, the tourism. So for us to get a cruising permit to cruise the islands, they will not say no, but they would never say yes. So we spent like four or five days trying to get a cruising permit and were unable to get one. Wow. So what we ended up doing is saying, okay, we're leaving. And as we left, we cruised through the islands on the way out, <laughs> stopped right, at the right. various places. And, of course, everyone that we met was overwhelmingly uh, hospitable mm -hmm. and wanted to be curious. And once again, we were kind of unusual because we, I guess, broke the law. But I had a justification. We were leaving, and we needed to anchor here. We're leaving. We're Slow leaving. way. We're Slow. taking our time. That's right. But it's, uh... Yep, right. So... Then we went, another interesting stop. We went to Oman. Oh, I got a funny story for Oman. I bet you do. Okay. <laughs> uh, we were there for a short period of time, and I wanted to get a haircut. Samantha always cut my hair, mm -hmm. and uh, I figured I'd give her a break. So I see this barber sign, and I walk up the second flight of stairs and I go into this barber shop, and there's two kids in there. One's probably 10, the other one's like 15 or 16, that's the barbershop. Mm. So I sit down in the chair. I figured, what the heck? It'll grow out. You know, right, right. What's How the bad difference? Could it be? How bad could it be? So I'm getting a haircut. They're doing a nice job. I get a shoulder massage, nice. you know, neck massage. Uh -oh. I get the, the whole treatment there. It was right. really great. And I'm coming to the end, and the guy takes his Q-tip, long Q-tip, dips it in the alcohol, lights it on fire. Mm, I'm out. <laughs> and flicks it on my ear. I'm looking in the mirror, my ear's on fire. And then he blows it out. It was not hot, it didn't hurt, it didn't, but it burned all the little hairs off my ear. But I'm looking in the mirror, seeing my head this on fire. Is, this is where I, this <laughs> is where the trip ends. That's this right. is where my good. journey But I was all stops. set for the other ear, so. Uh, yeah. But don't use gasoline, but definitely use alcohol. Oh my God. So, I thought, that is a good, that is a good story. Wow, yeah. don't, yeah, careful where you get your hair cut. But, right, so when I, Got back to tell Samantha about that. She about wet her pants. <laughs> so. so she cut your hair for the rest of the trip. The, yeah, well, was, she, I don't know what would happen at the next one. I should have tried. but Jeez. Uh, maybe a machete. Oh, my God. <laughs> All these different cultures, huh? Yep, yep. Um, so from there, we went to, uh, that was Yemen, from Oman to Yemen. Uh, Yemen is the only place around the world where we furled the flag. Uh, we had a couple of Russian uh, tugs in there, okay. some Iranian vessels. We're the only American flag. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a rowboat, not a rowboat, a, a little, like a panga, mm -hmm. go by and some profanity issued about America. Mm -hmm. And um, we did get some fuel, furled the flag, got some fuel, and got out of Dodge. Yeah. That was uh, not a pleasant experience. Wow. Uh, but interesting to see how some places we are really hated and disliked. Right. Most other places, 
as a tourist and a boater, we were embraced. It was, uh, yeah. that was the only place we had a negative experience. Well, I mean, it is amazing. I mean, it's unfortunate that happened, but that your experience is predominantly good yeah. all the way around the world, spending years and that, you know, it's kind of this one spot. Yep. I guess that's not, it's not too bad. All things considered, right? Yeah. But it even has, have a little story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So from there, keep going, please. Okay. Yeah. From there, we the went trip. to Djibouti. Okay. Djibouti is at the mouth of the Red Sea on the east side, very small French territory, French territory. And I went into, uh, with Samantha, we went into a little uh, souk, a little uh, store. And I see on the floor this little monkey that's got a little belt around its waist. And we're looking around the store, and I asked the guy, I said, how much is the monkey? And he says, the monkey's mine. It's not for sale. And I said, oh, man, I really like that monkey. It's really a cute little baby monkey. It was a vervet cutest little uh, white face and whiskers and really cute monkey. $50 later, I leave with the monkey. And uh, the monkey I was... I see how you're gaining pets along this trip. There's the dog, and there's a cat, and now there's a monkey. monkey. Yep. So we had the monkey about four and a half years, but what a four and a half years. That monkey was a riot. It really was fun. And uh, we named her Djibouti, where she came from. It fits. And uh, so we left there, and of course, the, this is sort of a, uh, that whole area is what people consider very piracy-ridden and be concerned. And the research that I did in talking with the port captains at these various places in that proximity is they're really not interested in the yachts. What they're interested in are small commercial vessels that are carrying cash, to pay the crew, to pay bunkering, to pay for food when they get to ports. That's what these guys are after. So uh, we were a little bit concerned, but uh, we had no encounters. Okay. Um, and we, we then worked our way up the Red Sea, and we were trying from as far back as, as Djibouti to get a visa to visit Saudi Arabia. Um, because the east side is, you know, Somalia and all that. We didn't want to go over there. So Saudi sounded like a cool place to visit. And, wow, this, this one's a big story. All right, everyone. That's that's going to be part one of my conversation with Roger Moore. You're definitely going to want to tune in. The story just gets better and better, more unbelievable and epic. So we're going to be releasing the next episode Wednesday. Until then, please do me a favor. If you like this, enjoyed the podcast, do me a favor, share it out with a friend, like and rate us wherever you're listening to podcasts. It really helps us get the message out and continue to grow and do audio docs like this. So thanks for joining us so far. Until next week, I'll see you guys out on the water. Devo